Good to see you all here. Thank you for coming out and battling the dark skies and rain to be out here. As uh, many of you know and people watching at home hopefully know, I'm not Pastor Greg. <laughs> I'm a little bit shorter and a little bit younger and have less hair. So, <laughs> But uh, it's a privilege to be here. My name is Scotty Brown. I'm actually Pastor Greg's son-in-law. For those of you who don't know, uh, Pastor Greg actually had a medical appointment at the Mayo Clinic this morning, so he went last night and stayed the night and actually got some really encouraging news uh, regarding his gout uh, issues that he's been having. So really encouraging news, and he thinks that uh, they have a good plan in place for some dietary plans and medications, so they're going to track that, but we'll continue to keep him in our prayers. And so for that reason, he asked me a couple weeks ago if I'd be willing to... Uh, come and, and teach this chapter of Kings with you guys. So I, I jumped at the opportunity. I'm thankful for the opportunity. So with that being said, we're going to get into uh, some prayer before we get into the text. So if you join me in some prayer. Father, we just thank you so much uh, just for this day and this opportunity, Lord, to uh, study your word that you've given us. We thank you for just the text itself, Lord, how it will how it will teach us, Lord, but how it, sometimes it rubs us and it, and it molds us into who you want us to be. We thank you for the text, Lord. We thank you for this body and the leaders of this body, all the elders. We pray uh, a special for prayer for Pastor Greg tonight, Lord, that you would just continue to heal him, continue to walk with him and, and give guidance to the doctors that are with him. We also have a special prayer request from our audience tonight for a friend named Melody, Lord. We pray for her. We, you know the situation that's going on with her, with her health and, and the, the confusion that's going on with that, Lord. We ask that you please be with her now. First and foremost, give her peace, Lord. Just give her the peace that passes all understanding. We pray that you bring healing to her, that you bring understanding to the doctors that would deal with her, and that ultimately your will be done in all these situations. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we are in 2 Kings chapter 21, and I'll tell you uh, just right off the bat that two other uh, texts that we'll be in tonight is 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and also 1 John chapter 2. So not necessary that you have to turn to those, but just if you want to have those written down to go back to later. So in our our study tonight, I've, I've kind of come up with the title of this, The Forgotful King for a Forgotful People. Um, Manasseh is the main character of this text. We also have a King Amon who will be at the, at the tail end of this text, but Manasseh is a wicked king and kind of the most, one of the most infamous kings in the history of Israel for his wickedness. And to put this story in proper perspective, I'd like to just do a quick review of chapter 20. If you guys remember last week of chapter 20, it talked about King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was known as, as a righteous king for the majority of his life. And he became ill at a certain point in his life, and, and he knew that he was going to pass away, so he became very repentant and asked God for more time. And so God granted that and gave him 15 more years of his life. And so I'm just going to pick up there real quick. Or just, sorry, backtrack real quick before we get into it. So when he was granted those 15 years, what did he do with them? He became haughty and prideful and boastful in those years and made a lot of bad choices that would eventually end to uh, Babylon, eventually hundreds of years later, coming and taking over Judah. But it's because of his actions of inviting envoys into the kingdom and showing them all around the kingdom. And it's funny, when I was, when I was reading that text, it kind of reminded me recently in the last few years where, um, not to be super political, but I, we, uh, we, we, we had a, an exchange with Russia, I believe it was, where we said, hey, here's the, if we were to ever go to war, here's the five areas, or here's a list of areas that you shouldn't attack. <laughs> so maybe not the best... Uh, advice to let out there, secrets to let out there. So that kind of reminded me of Hezekiah leading these Babylonians to, oh, hey, look at all, look at all we have. Look at all this great stuff that we have. 
So because of those, and, and really it's not because of the, the foolishness that he acted in, but because of his pride and his, and his haughty heart that uh, God brought Isaiah to come and give this word to King Hezekiah. So this is in 2 Kings chapter 20. It's going to start in verse 16. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his father, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So in, in studying this text and in preparation for this, you, the Kings are an interesting book because it's, it's really just a summary. These chapters are kind of just summaries of events. And they're, they're somewhat brief chapters. And so at first glance, when you read them, you think, you know, it's not necessarily like a, a book of Philippians or Ephesians, these epistles where you have this, you know, really rich text that's going on in it. It's, you know, it's, at first glance when you read it, it's like, okay, it's just kind of telling you what happened. And, but in reading it and, and going through it, I really felt the Holy Spirit bring up these questions that I was having as I was reading it, questions that I was asking myself. And so... I've really felt led that I would ask these questions, that this would be a, a four-question study. You might have heard of like a, a three-point sermon or a five-point sermon. Well, these aren't points. These are questions. So these are questions that, that I ask, but I think are good that all of us ask. And so that being said, this isn't necessarily, right, it absolutely isn't my interpretation of the text. You know, we never want to get into something like that. But this is the questions that came up as I'm going through this text. So my first question for myself and for, for you who are listening, am I determined to leave a legacy of righteousness by finishing strong and enduring till the end? First question, am I determined to leave a legacy of righteousness by finishing strong and enduring till the end? You know, as we've covered already, Hezekiah lived a life of obedience. Then he becomes ill and asks for healing. God heals him and gives him the extra 15 years of life. And by all accounts, these last 15 years are the worst of his life. And, and what we'll read in chapter 21 are, are a direct result of these last 15 years. You see his selfishness in verse 19 where he says, where it says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Even though he said, Hey, all this stuff's going to happen to you, to the, your kingdom and your family, Hezekiah's response is, The word that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? So you see the selfishness in his heart that even though he's brought and he's, he's lived this life of obedience, he's lived this awesome life. And really, we can guess that when he's coming to the end, there's a little bit of selfishness in that, right? He's coming in, please, please, no, 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 please, let me, let me just stay, let me just stay. And so he's granted this time. So what does he do with that time? He wastes it, right? And so that's not something that we want to emulate, right? We, we've lived this life. You know, Lord willing, most of us in this room are saved. We've, we've come into this new creature, this new creation. And we know that all of our sins are forgiven. However, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to continue with this enduring legacy. Because really, when he, the legacy that he's leaving, his whole family and his country are going to have to deal with the fallout of this legacy. His, his reaction to this kind of reminds me of what something that recently happened in my house where, you know, bedtime 
at my house. I have four kids. We're expecting our fifth kid. So four young kids in a three-bedroom house. One of the kids is a baby, so he's got to have his own room. So I got three kids sleeping in one room for now until we can figure something else out. And just bedtime is just all-out war at my house. Because no one wants to brush their teeth or anything like that. And then even by the time you get them to bed, they want to talk and there's just carousing going on. You hear wrestling going on and you just, you're just tired from the day. You just yell out, you know, hey, be quiet, be quiet. Then sometimes you got to go in there and let them know who's boss, right? So you go and you tell them, hey, there's going to be consequences. So recently, I, one of the consequences I told them after one of these events is if I got to come back in here again, Tomorrow, everybody's sleeping in different rooms. Everybody's, somebody might be sleeping on the floor in the laundry room. So we're going to find different spaces for you so that everyone falls asleep. So the next night, my six-year-old daughter, Marlo, comes and she, she thinks she's slick. You know, it's two minutes into bedtime and she comes in and says, Dad, where am I sleeping tonight? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you're sleeping in your bed? And she said, no, you said... If we act up, we're all going to different rooms, and Remy and Easton are acting up right now. So I'd like to know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And I said, okay, well, Easton's going to sleep on the couch, and Remy's going to sleep in my bed with us, and you're going to sleep in your room, and we're going to close the door. And she's like, oh, no, never mind, never mind. <laughs> but it just reminds me, of, you know, it's like the, the immaturity of a child. It's, this is what Hezekiah, this is what we're dealing with. As long as it's not me, right? It's, it's, it's okay, yeah, it's okay, cool, that's going to happen. As long as it's not me. And, and truthfully, we can be that way, right? We can be that way at times. So as long as it's not me. Some scripture about enduring till the end that's uh, not encouraging for Hezekiah and should be a warning to us. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. 1 John chapter 2, which is uh, one of the chapters that we're going to parallel this text with. 1 John chapter 2, 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So what John is talking about there is that, you know, there's this confusion of, oh, you know, we've lived this life, and then some people are doing this, some people are that, and John makes it plain. They're not, they were never Christians. They were never part of our flock, you know. They were here. They were with us. They might have they worshipped with us. They might have done these mighty works. They might have done the prophecies, the things that Jesus was talking about, but they weren't with us. How did we know that they weren't with us? Is they left, right? They didn't endure. So how do we endure till the end? There's one point for this. One point, but two actions. We study God's word and we live it. We study God's word and we live it. Both of those, right? You can know all the scripture in the world if you're not living it. What does it matter? The flip side you can think you're living the right way if you don't know the right way, if you don't know Scripture, if you're not studying God's Word, if you're not regularly in it, then how are you going to know that you're living the right way? Back to 1 John chapter 2, in verse 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because of your sins, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you are strong. 
and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the Greek word for abide in this text is, is meno, M-E-N-O. And it means to stay, to remain, to dwell. So God's word must stay and dwell in us, and we must stay and dwell in him. Right? That's what John is telling us in, in this text is that if you want to stay, if you want to endure, you have to abide in his word and you have to abide in him. And so now we'll get into the text that we're going into tonight. Chapter 21, Manasseh has now come on the scene as we, as we read at the end of chapter 20. He's the son of Hezekiah. Beginning of chapter 1. Or chapter 21, verse 1 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. So his reign was approximately from, nine, or from 697 B.C. to 642 B.C. If we do some quick math, right, it says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Right? Hezekiah was granted 15 extra years of his life. So if he becomes king at age 12, then it's safe to say Manasseh was born in that extra 15 years that Hezekiah was given. This furthers the point that Pastor Gray was talking about last week of God's sovereignty, right? This is no surprise that God didn't change his mind with Hezekiah. He had foreknowledge of all these events. It's all going to come to pass of his plan, right? But Manasseh would never have been born if Hezekiah wasn't granted these extra 15 years. And it might be, I don't know, so much of a stretch to say, but it might maybe stepping outside the text. In these extra 15 years that Hezekiah lived this boastful life that wasn't on the righteous path, he has this son that is watching this king who's not a righteous king, correct? And so now we, now we have Manasseh, and we're going to see what Manasseh is all about in his reign. So back to verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all those hosts of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune tellers and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the card image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So you see that bringing that text back, God made this promise, as, as long as you keep these commandments, you're not going to wander. Right? Well, now this has been broken by Manasseh's actions. And so when Babylon, 100 years later, comes and takes over, 
This is the fulfillment of now this is broken. Verse 9, but they, did not, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So it says that phrase at the beginning of this verse 2, and then also in, in verse 9, what that's talking about there is the Canaanites that had been driven out when Israel came into the land with Joshua. So now God's people, the Israelites that are in Judah, are doing practices that are even worse than the Canaanites were doing before they showed up. And so coming through this text, it leads me to question number two. What is my relationship with the world? What is my relationship with the world? We see in, in verse 9 of our text, but also in Second Chronicles, which is the Second Chronicles 33 is the other chapter that we're going to run parallel to this. In verse 9 of that as well, 2 Chronicles 33, 9, we see that the sinful nature, it didn't just begin and end with Manasseh, right? Manasseh's the king, but it's not like, oh, the king is doing all this stuff and all the people of Israel are just are hating it and they just wish it would stop and they're crying out to God to bring him a new king. No, that's not the case. 2 Chronicles 33.9, Manasseh led Judah and its inhabitants of Israel astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So he led Judah and its inhabitants also in these practices, and they willingly partook in these practices. God will always hold his people accountable. This we can be sure of. Throughout Scripture, God will always hold his people accountable. And so I ask, now who are his people? Who are his people today? We are his people, right? Even though we may not be of of, uh, Jewish descent, you know, we might not have that ethnic group, but those of us Jews and Gentiles, we're all God's people. All of us who are saved, amen. We love that. We want to be his people. But God is going to hold his people accountable for their actions, always. And so I ask, what is our relationship with the world? Just because we might have leaders that are acting a certain way, just because we're put in these these situations, these circumstances, where it's really hard to endure, where it's really hard to follow God. What is our relationship like when we're in the world? What is our relationship with the world? The first John chapter 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And you may say, well, I don't do those things, Scotty. I don't, you know, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of, of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not, that's not me. I don't do those things. I stay away from all worldly things. I abstain from that. And I think that's great if that's what you're saying, right? I think it's great to not partake in those things, to abstain from those things. That's not what our text, that's not what 1 John 2 is telling us. It doesn't say don't do these things, right? It doesn't say don't do what the world does. It says do not love the world, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. So where am I going with that? Well, we we get three examples here, three specific examples. And two, the first two of these examples are are difficult to talk about. And so it's it's kind of brushed off in church circles a lot, right? We don't want to talk about lust and things like that, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. You know, very rarely would someone openly admit to dealing with those types of sins. 
but they are hidden sins and they're absolutely insidious. And they've ravaged the church since its inception. That's why John's writing about it, right? Why would he be writing about something that they're not dealing with? So we know we have countless examples in our modern time of how lust and and the desires of the eyes and things like this have crippled families and crippled churches. So we know it's going on now, and we know it was going on at the beginning, right? So, So this is not something that's just going away. So even though this might be a hidden thing, It's something that we should talk about when we can, right? Maybe in a more private setting, but we need to bring these things to light, right? If you're you're holding these things as this hidden thing, but then you're going to church and you're going to your Bible study and you're going to your, your groups and you're going out and you're witnessing for God and you're doing all these things, but you have this hidden sin that's going on, well, you, there's a, there's a distance between you and God, right? God can't, God is this holy other God. If you have this sin that's continuing in your life, you're not walking with God. That's not to say that you're not saved. That's not to say that that sin isn't forgiven. But that the actions that you're trying to do, oh, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do this, but I got this little thing over here. There's this, no, there's this, it's not lining up, Right? So, yeah, we, how much do you love the world? Well, those things we want to definitely call out. We want to rid them from our lives. We want to get accountability on those things. We want to confess those things. But then we have this third sin that's brought up, and this is a very public sin. And maybe it's, it's, it's an easier sin for us to talk about, the pride of life, right? Most people are, are okay with admitting that they can be prideful at times, right? That's, that's an easy one to, to give up. Yeah, I can be prideful at times. But the pride of life, how much do you love the world? Maybe you don't connect those two things. But, okay, let's look at pride and, and, and is what it is. How much do we love our things, right? How much do we love our status? How much do we love our comfortability in the world? Right? And so, man, I'm, I'm going to do all this stuff, and maybe, hey, I, I, you know, I'm not flashy. I, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not prideful. But if I get into a situation that's uncomfortable, that I have to be bold in my faith, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not going to go there, right? I'm not going to make myself uncomfortable. You can't expect me to make myself uncomfortable at work. You can't expect me to make myself uncomfortable with my family, right? You can't expect me to make myself uncomfortable in social settings or in the community. The problem with this thinking is that the culture that we live in is wicked. And there's no other way to put it. The culture that we live in is wicked. It's not unlike the culture in Judah. I can tell you that. We look at Manasseh and his reign and we think, oh, terrible. This is this terrible thing. Well, we have a terrible culture, a wicked culture that we're living in right now. And so that's not to say that you have to be brash. I don't think that the Bible calls us to be brash in dealing with these things. However, You also don't apologize for God's Word. You don't apologize for what the Bible says. When we're dealing with these things, when when you're living your life in such a way that you're coming into interaction with lost people because you're witnessing and you want to be a witness, okay, there's going to be uncomfortable conversations that come up. And it might not even be with someone who's a stranger, it might be in your family, it might be with your coworkers, it might be with your friend group, right? And so that doesn't mean that every day, every time you see them, you know, you got to bring a, a big, big old stamp and stamp center on their head. But when you come into these conversations of, okay, the Holy Spirit is now using you, 
in this person's life. And let's get it straight. The Holy Spirit is using you. It's not what you're doing. Okay? So when we get into these situations, we don't need to think, oh, how can I, how can I say this in such a way that this person will be open to it? Or how can I say it in such a way that they're not going to shut me down right away? Or, or how can I say it that they're not going to be mad at me? Or it's not going to affect my everyday life. You know, if it's someone at work, man, this could affect my livelihood. How can I say this in such a way that it's, uh, you know, kind of straddling the fence? There's, there's nothing in the Bible that speaks of that's the way to handle things, right? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the world's going to hate you because they hate me, right? Expect persecution, right? What would, what, would the, what would Jesus think? What would the Apostle Paul think if they were sitting there with you and, and someone asked you something very blunt about the Bible or what the Bible says, like something about same-sex marriage or, uh, you know, uh, other paths to heaven? You know, some people would say, oh, you know, that's good for you, but we practice this way, and you know, we, it's not really, it's not nice that that Christians are. They they say this is the only way. I don't like that. What do you think about that? Right, and and the way to approach that is to say, oh well, you know, I wish it was different. You know, I wish, I wish the Bible said something different about that. No, right. All right, it's like, can you imagine Jesus? Oh, when, when, when they're coming, if they were to ask him that question, you know what? When I get back to heaven, me and the Father and the Holy Spirit are going to get together. We're going re- to review that. Maybe make some revisions, right? No. The pride of life. What is your relationship like with the world? Is your relationship with the world more important than abiding with, with God? And why do I say that? Because I, I'm, this, I'm that way. I can be that way at times, right? Ah, oh, man, I really don't feel like having this conversation right now. I think that a lot of times, you know. Uh, I would actually say probably it's 50-50 on when a conversation comes up about church or religion, and I'm like, yeah, you know. A lot of times I'm like, ah, you know, it's not really a convenient time for me. But... We're called to live a certain way, right? We're called to preach a certain message. Paul said, if, if the angels preach a different gospel, let them be cursed, right? So when, it, when it's your time, when you're up to bat, you know, it's like a heavyweight fighter. They only fight a couple times a year, right? But they set that date, July 4th, Independence Day, heavyweight fight. Well, when, it, when it's that fighters turn to walk in the ring they don't get to say ah you know i don't feel like it today right when when the holy spirit calls your number you got to step up and be bold and like i said you don't got to be brash you don't got to seek it out you don't got to be argumentative but speak the word know the word so that you can speak the word but speak the word let it be what it is and so i don't agree with that i think you're stupid or whatever they're going to say okay well that's what i believe and let the Holy Spirit work on them. Because guess what? Like I said, you're not saving them anyways. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Don't apologize for God or His Word. Third question. It kind of ties in. Where does my allegiance lie? Where does my allegiance lie? First John 2, 7, and 8 says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The true light is already shining in you, right? The true, amen, we want that. It's a miracle. I mean, I can't speak for everyone in the room, but I think of, 
I think of who I am, who I was before I was saved. And there's things that I'm just, if it wasn't for God's grace, I'm just so ashamed of, of the way that I acted, right? But now I'm a new, new creation in Christ, and we love that. I love that. I want that, right? So if I am this new creation, where does my allegiance lie? We are a new creation in Christ. We are His people. Do we act that way? Is our greatest allegiance and patriotism to God? So we'll see in our text what has always been true, that even in the most evil of times, God still has a remnant that's walking with Him among His people. So my question to myself and, and to you all is that are we committed to be that remnant? Are we committed that no matter what's going to come, that we are God's people? That we are God's people first and foremost, that that's where our allegiance lies. You know, politics these days are, are a landmine. Extremely shaky, Right? At, at, at best, you're going to get 50% of the people liking what you're saying. Okay? But, you know, there's a reputation about politics, politicians for a reason because it's, it's a dirty game. It is what it is. So when election season comes up or these things come up and we get so fervent in our feelings about who we like and who this person is and who this person is, it's like, do we have that same type of tenacity and fervor for God because guess what we're God's people we're God's people right we love hey I serve this country I love this country I want the best for this country it would just it'd be awful if this country were to be no more but if this country's no more, God's people are still going to be someplace, right? And so we need to be committed that no matter what comes, that we are, we are committed to be the remnant. I think of it now is that, you know, I did the math. It's like, okay, I have, I have kids. I'm about to have five kids. Lord willing, I'm probably going to have a lot of grandkids, right? They're going to be alive 100 years from now. My grandkids are going to be alive a hundred years from now. What is the world going to look like a hundred years from now? Especially with the wicked culture that we have today. Well, I hope it's a lot like the Bible and that we get revival, right? <laughs> I hope it gets torn down and we all get shipped off somewhere and then there's revival and they get to live in prosperity, right? But that's not a given. So I have to live in such a way that prepares my children, prepares my grandchildren. And it's the same for you all, right? Even if your children are out of the house, you have grandchildren. If you don't have children and grandchildren, you have influence in this world. You have influence with the people that you're around. Live your life in such a way that people know that your allegiance lies with God, that your allegiance lies with God's people. If we look at Judah, and they have this king, and, and they didn't fight back against that. They didn't fight back against the way that the king was acting. They didn't stand up for this land that God had given them. Back to the text. 2 Kings 21, verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, which, okay, here's the remnant, his servants, the prophets, right? Even in this time, God has his remnant in Judah. And it's his servants, the prophets. The prophets that spoke what we're about to hear is a collection of prophets. It's Hosea, Joel, Naaman, Habakkuk, and Isaiah. So what we're about to, to read here is a collection of things that each of them had spoke to Manasseh. Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Isaiah. So verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did, 
who were here before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers, since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, sorry, and even to this day. So three quick things to unpack in that few verses that we read. The tingling of ears. The tingling of ears. You write this down, 1 Samuel 3.11. 1 Samuel 3.11 is a reference to this same phrase, the tingling of ears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And so what, what the Lord's talking to Samuel about, I know we've studied Samuel some, what he's talking about in this text is, I don't know if you remember, but before Samuel, the prophet was Eli. And so when, when Samuel is anointed and he's going to become the prophet, Eli had two sons who acted very blasphemous. And so his sons suffered a terrible fate. Eli suffered this terrible fate in such a way that they were made an example. And so we see the same terminology. Everyone who has two ears... They'll, they'll tingle from what's about to happen in Jerusalem is that Jerusalem is going to be made an example of for the way that they've acted. Second little terminology we saw in that text, the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. So what he's saying is that, you know, at this time we have the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel's under captivity right now. So they've already met their fate. So what God is saying through the prophets is that he's gonna, they're going to suffer the same fate. There's no line of demarcation, right? This is the one kingdom's all going to be suffering this fate. And then this is extremely descriptive and, and kind of scary to even read. As one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. If you write down Jeremiah 51.34, Jeremiah 51.34, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me and crushed me, and he has made an empty vessel, and he has swallowed me like a monster, and he has filled his stomach with my delicacies, and he has rinsed me out. So like one would do a dish, he's rinsed him out. So this is prophesying what is to come of the kingdom of Judah. They'll eventually be taken over by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Back into our text in 2 Kings, verse 16. Moreover, moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he had committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and he was buried in the garden of his house in the garden of Uzzah. And Amon, his son, reigned in his place. So this kind of brings to close Manasseh's reign, which, as we've read, was terrible, right? <laughs> Just flat out. However, we know that, you know, the Kings is kind of more of a summary. The Chronicles has a lot more detail of what's going on in these stories. So, as I said before, Second Chronicles 33 
is a chapter that literally runs parallel to this chapter in 2 Kings. So it's talking about the same story of Manasseh's life. So if we were to stop here, we would think Manasseh's just, everything's terrible about Manasseh, right? He's this terrible king. Everything, he's, he's infamously terrible. And he was, he was wicked. But if we can gain some more knowledge by looking at 2 Chronicles 33, we'll write down 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 17. 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 17, beginning in verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they did not pay attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So this, none of this was mentioned in 2 Kings, right? Assyrians came and, and got him with hooks and chained him and, and brought him to Babylon, right? And when he was in distress, he entered the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Okay. Didn't see that in 2 Kings. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved by his in, entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterwards, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate. And he carried around Ophel and, was, and raised it to a very great height. And also, he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountains of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving and commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Never, never, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So plot twist, right? <laughs> Manasseh kind of did the reverse of his father, Hezekiah, right? He lived this awful, terrible life, but then repented and then did all these good deeds at the end of his life to the people of Judah, which was somewhat stunning to read, right? Because you're, you know, in preparation for this, I'm reading just 2 Kings, get through that, and then I go to 2 Chronicles, and it's like, oh, wow, here's this whole new thing, right? But then it brought me to question number four. How often do I repent? How often do I repent? It's interesting, right? Because, you know, we, we believe that God's forgiven all of our sins, right? So you might think, well, what, what does it matter if we repent? What does it matter? Why should we have to repent if God's already forgiven that sin? And that's a valid thought. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Sorry. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, for your sins may be blotted out. That, that your sins may be blotted out. Romans 6.1 and 2 this is Paul speaking and discussing sin, right? In, the, in, the, in this thought that, hey, we've already been forgiven, right? Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? So what he's saying is, what, should, we, should we keep living this way so that grace can continue to cover us? We'll get more grace and more grace? 
Verse 2 says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so it's, it's an interesting question, right? If, how often do I repent? If we're saying based off of how many times I sin, right? If I had to put a percentage of how often do I sin to how often do I percent, or repent, it's not going to look good, right? It's probably under 5%. Just being honest, right? And that's human, right? And we're still saved and we're still going to go to heaven. But is that the way that we should live, right? Because we see the power of repentance, right? The effect that it has on us. Like I said earlier when we were talking about when we have these hidden sins and things like that, maybe it's not lust or anything like that, but we have these sins that happen, and really, especially when it's been brought to our face, right? In that moment, that, that clicks is like, oh, wow. I can't believe I've been doing that. I can't, I, I, you know, the epiphany, it's like maybe, maybe, maybe just everything's going wrong and you just, you're just so frustrated and it's been months and months and months. Man, why is this going on? Why is it? And then you just, oh, wow, it's me, right? Man, in those moments, what a wonderful time to repent, right? What a, God's already forgiven you, but as Paul said, how can we who died to sin still live in it, right? If you're a new creature, if you're a new creation in Christ, when, when faced with the sin that you've been living in, how can your reaction to that be, ah, well, thanks, you know? <laughs> oh, just, it's Tuesday, let me go get my coffee, right? No. Let's stop and let's repent. Right? Let's make repentance great again. Right? <laughs> Truly. Because if, if, if we are to be a witness... And really, truly, our greatest witness is at home, right? So I think of someone like myself where, man, if my children can see that action in me, how invaluable of a lesson that is for them. But also, if you're to be a witness out in the world, right? And what's, what's a common uh, argument against Christians, right? Oh, they're all bad people, you know? Are they all, oh, this person says they're a Christian, but I've seen them smoke and I've seen them you know, cheat on their taxes, and I've seen them rip people off, and whatever it may be. What a witness of, in that time of when you're faced with sin, you, you have this attitude of repentance. Because then that becomes part of your witness, that becomes part of your testimony. And your testimony is not only freeing to you, it's freeing to others that you can share Oh, man, when this came to me, I got right down on my knees and I just asked God for forgiveness and I'm so thankful He's already forgiven me. I have that confidence, but I needed to get right. I needed to at least let this off my chest and let God know that I'm truly sorry. And He knows, but it's, it's the action, right? It's the fruit in, in that action. So wrapping up, 2 Kings, we're jumping back to 2 Kings from, from 2 Chronicles. Verse 19, now Amon, Manasseh's son, has come into power. Or Amon. Not Amen, Amon. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother was named Meshulameth, Meshulameth, the daughter of Herez and of Jatba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of his fathers, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Amon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. 
But the people of the land struck down all who had conspired against the king, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Amon that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the, king of, of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And we'll find out next week, Josiah was actually a good king. Right? So we have this... We have this history of a good king doesn't finish well, a bad king who finishes well, a bad king who didn't have time to finish well, and now we're going to get a good king. So that's a good cycle. But it's interesting, you know, kind of back to the point of what's your legacy with Amon, right? He sees his father. His father reigned for 55 years. So Amon saw all of the deeds of his father, right? So just because he repented and came back doesn't mean that, oh, now his son is going to be in that same way. His son was probably already set in his ways by the time it was his time to reign. But just wrapping up, going back to the title that we had for this study, A Forgetful King for a Forgetful People. Manasseh's name in Hebrew means forgetfulness or he that is forgotten. But it's fitting that he had this name because it wasn't just he who forgot all that had happened in Israel's history. He was a leader of the people who forgot who their God was and what their God had done for them. Right? So it's not a question, but probably the greatest lesson that we can take from this text is that we not forget who we are in Christ. That we not forget, that we, you know, we ask ourselves these questions and they, they rub on us and they, they make us think, and that's good, and we definitely want that. But what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with the answers that we get to those questions? As we've said, we love that we're this new creation. We love that we have the shining light in us. Let's not forget that. Let's not, when we go into the world, let's not forget that. It's easy to forget. I'm the, I'm the chief among people who forget probably, right? There's people who go to church with us. I work with them. People that know me well, they, they'll tell you I'm not a perfect person, right? Much like everyone else. But... We need to continue in such a way we do not forget and so others see that in us, right? So we don't, that we're more like a Josiah who has this continued long history of obedience to God and we're not like these kings that are waffling back and forth. We want to endure to the end. We want to have an enduring faith a steadfast faith that endures to the end. Because the Bible tells us that that's the number one marker of someone who's saved, right? It's kind of, it's kind of uh, a question with two of the kings that we talked about here. Amon, probably not a question. We think he's probably in hell, right? But we have Hezekiah who lived this life of righteousness and obedience, and then he didn't finish strong. And this is prior to Jesus coming. Right? Jesus hadn't forgiven all his sins. So we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Same thing with Manasseh. He lived this life of terrible deeds, and he repented, and he said all these things, but we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how he ended up. But we do know, and the Bible does tell us, that the number one marker of someone who ends up in heaven is their enduring faith, that they endure to the end. So let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we just thank you so much for who you are, Lord. We thank you for your text. We thank you for what you've given us, Lord. We thank you for its, its accuracy that is without error, Lord, that it's a living, breathing word, that we can go to 
your Bible and we can open up some text from the Old Testament that was written thousands of years ago. And if we just look at it at the surface, it looks like just a brief summary of a history of one man's life. But your word is so good and so faithful that if we are to study it, that it's going to give us, Lord, it's going to give us what we need. It's going to give us the answers. It's going to give us the plan of how we are to walk in this world. I pray for the people that are here tonight, the people that are watching, and also for myself, Lord, that we would have a boldness when we encounter the world, that we would not forget who you are, who you are to us and what you've done in our lives, Lord, that our allegiance would be to you first and foremost, that when we are inevitably faced with these uncomfortable situations in our lives and, and it could have real real life consequences and it, maybe not as great consequences, but it, it's uncomfortable. You know, maybe we hurt somebody's feelings. Maybe it's someone we love. We don't want that. But above all that, Lord, that our allegiance would be to you and your word and what you've taught us and that we would preach the gospel. That we would preach the true gospel and that we would rest in you and we would know that you're faithful. That we only have to cast the seed, Lord. We don't have to water it. We don't have to grow it. We don't have to craft anything special with the soil. We just have to throw the seed and that you will do the work. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.